our passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. If you're going to follow along with the Bible there in the seats, that's page 233. And if you haven't been with us, or because it's been a few weeks, your memory has grown faint, I'll just remind you that prior to this morning's passage, that Saul had been revealed to be God's choice to be the king over Israel. They had requested a king, a king like the rest of the nations, and Samuel had gone to Saul and explained uh, that he would be king. But then the lots were taken. Saul was selected. He was reluctant and then went home. Some people excited, some people going to support him, others denying the fact that he might be able to be their king. And that's where we pick up this morning. I think I said 1 Samuel 12, but it is 1 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 15. Let's hear God's word together this morning. Then Nahash, the Amnite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Amnite, said to them, On this condition I will make treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to them, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is none to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
I'll make some references this morning, but invite you to further study a lot of what is behind this text, history that plays with people's emotions and their responses in this text comes from Judges 19 through 21. I'll mention some of those episodes, but if later in your study and reflection this afternoon or later this week, uh, or you have curiosity piqued by the message this morning, I invite you, uh, because history has shaped what is happening in this morning's passage, and it shapes people's responses, and it begs the question, well, what will people do this time? And so I just invite you to, to go back if you have time and look at those uh, as I can't uh, unpack every detail from those passages as well. But as we get into the passage this morning, let's pray that the Lord would bless. Gracious God, be with us. Lord, uh, you hear that, that my voice is catching, that the cold that I thought was gone is not completely. And so Lord, I ask your physical strength, and all of us need the same spiritually that you would give us understanding and focus, conviction to understand your word and also to respond to your word, not only with receiving it, but with wisdom and obedience and greater love for you. Bless our time together in your word that you have given to us. O gracious God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes you can't tell the quality of a product until you put it to the test. And I should start by saying this before I get into the story, that my dad is a very gifted builder, that my dad built a 1,000-square-foot addition on our home all by himself, uh, only paying for someone to come in and do the electricity, did the plumbing, all those things. So he is a gifted builder. But it started out much earlier in his life. He did a couple odd woodworking projects, but when he was about 13 or 14, he undertook his first real project to build himself a boat a small rowboat. And using what he learned, he you know, sawed and measured and did all this work preparing the boat. And he set out for the first time putting it out on the water. Gets out from the shore, two feet, five feet, ten feet. When as he gets out from shore about 30 feet, he notices water starting to bubble into the boat. A few minutes later, and it is too much to get out of the boat. Unfortunately, he didn't get too far from shore before he realized that the boat would not be sound and was able to get it back so that he could effect repairs. He thought it was a sound boat. He had sealed it. He had glued it. He had done everything right, except there had been a miscommunication at the hardware store, and he had bought water-soluble glue. He fixed that, and then the boat was just fine. He thought he had done everything right, but as with so many things, you don't know the true strength, quality of something before it's put to the test. And so it is with Saul. Saul, through the casting of lots, was announced to be God's selection to be the king. But he has actually not been installed as the king yet. You might parallel it to we elect a new president but it's a few months before we inaugurate them and actually install them. That's essentially what's happened. And what was the response of people? Some were like, great, God's given us a king like we wanted. This is good news. Others said, we're so committed to having a king, we're going to follow Saul back to his home, and we're going to be 
kind of the seed of a future army, and others said, can this man lead us? And so we're kind of left with the question, well, what kind of king will he be? What kind of king has God given his people? You don't know until there's a challenge. Like the boat put out on the water, now is the time of testing for Saul. Saul was selected as king, and the primary reason that the Israelites wanted a king like the rest of the nations was they wanted a king to protect them from their enemies, to defeat their enemies. And God said, fine, this is not what I wanted for you, but I will give you such a king. And he talked about all the reasons it would be a bad idea. But he did commit and promise that it would be a king that would protect them from their enemies. Well, now there's an enemy. Is he going to be the king that was promised? Is God going to keep his word? What is the nature of this challenge? Well, this leader, who is later described in 1 Samuel as a king, Nahash the Ammonite, shows up. And Nahash's name means serpent or snake. You might think of a mob movie, and a guy named Snake shows up to the local mom-and-pop store and says, give me all your money. And they say, and if not, you know, you can buy my protection. And to show the rest of the people that you belong under my protection... I'm going to take a piece, not only of your prophet, I'm going to take a piece of you. The people say, don't take all of our stuff. We'll make a covenant with you. And he says, "We're going to, if you do that, fine. But you're not only going to owe me a piece of everything you reap from your fields, I'm going to take your eye. Because if he takes the right eyes, then the men are not going to have depth perception. They're not going to be able to fight back in the future. And it will bring not only disgrace on the men of Jabesh Gilead, but it'll bring, bring disgrace on the rest of Israel. Because these are your people. And this is what you let happen to them. This is the first test. What kind of king has God given? And how will the people respond to the king? As the passage unfolds, we'll find out a lot more about Saul, the man that God has selected to be their king. And we find in response to this challenge, A king who fights on behalf of his people. A king who is shown to be dependent on God's power instead of his own. A king who unites his people. And a king who is gracious in victory. We're not given a list of attributes about Saul. In fact, all we know about Saul is he's not very, uh, he's very tall, but he doesn't seem to know much about following the Lord. He seems to be hesitant about being named king. And now there's a big, bad meanie on the block. It's not just the Philistines who have been threatening from the south. Now there are new bad guys coming from the east. What is Saul going to do? The first thing that we find is upon learning of the news, as the spirit falls upon him, he is angry. And his anger was greatly kindled. His anger is kindled because his people, the people that he is to be king over, are being attacked. Not only attacked and threatened, but attacked and threatened in a way that will bring shame and dishonor upon them and upon Israel. Now the thing to know about those of Jabesh-Gilead is they have caused problems in the past. Towards the end of the book of Judges, as everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, all 
sorts of evil is allowed to crop up in various places. And among Saul's people, the Benjaminites, a grievous sin was done. And so all of Israel was called up to go against Benjamin to fight, to correct what was done wrong. And Jabesh Gilead was the only town, was the only clan that said, yeah, the rest of you can do that. We're going to stay at home. Now they are sending messengers out to all of Israel saying, hey, we have a problem. Can you come fight on our behalf? They've caused problems. They've been uncooperative. They're a small edge group on the margins of Israel. This is not a politically significant group. If you are a new king who has yet to establish a full army, who is, still has people doubting whether you will make a king, the politically expedient decision may be to let them deal with what they brought upon themselves. To worry more about what the rest of Israel will think than what will happen to them. But though they are marginal, though they are those who are unpopular, the king that God has chosen to deliver his people from their enemies chooses to deliver not them just from the big bad guys, the Philistines that threaten everyone, but even to come and fight on behalf of Jabesh Gilead from the new bad guys, the Ammonites. As God's people asked for a king that would fight off their enemies, the first thing we see is that God is true to his word. That when he said, I will give you a king who will protect you from his enemies, that on the first moment, the same guy who was hiding in the baggage because he didn't want to confront the reality that he was being named as king with the help of the Spirit responds to injustice by going to fight on behalf of those that are weak, that cannot fight for themselves, and for whom, in reality, no one else really wants to fight for. God has given them a king that will fight against their enemies. But what is the basis by which he does this? He does this as we see. He, Saul is still a young and weak king, right? So, so impoverished are they that he's, he's still at home following the oxen. He's going out to the field and plowing his fields with the oxen. He's still managing the animals. This is not a president. This is not a king as we think when Buckingham Palace with all the guards, with all the wealth, with all the servants. This hope for a unified kingdom this hope for a king who will be like all the other kings, great in battle and powerful, is yet to materialize. But the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. And as that happens, and as First Samuel describes it, it reminds us of the past of God's people. How when God's people were in trouble in the time of the judges, that God would raise up men, men who seemed to have struggle, struggles with their own sin, with their own fear, that God would raise them up. We saw the Spirit of God rushing upon Samson. When the Spirit rushed upon Samson, this selfish man would be used of God to defeat the Philistines and defeat them mightily. When the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, we are reminded of God's power displayed in the past to his people. And then as he calls out to the people, he sends out these pieces of the oxen and gathers the people. They come together at Bezek, and we see that there are 
300,000 from the rest of the people of Israel and 30,000 from the tribe of Judah. Now, numbers in Scripture, sometimes there, there are different arguments that these are the exact numbers, that they used a word that means thousand often to refer to less, and that's done in other times in history. But the significant thing is the number three, that there are 300,000 and 30,000, and then they're broken up into three groups to finally attack the Ammonites. Because God took a number in the 300s in, with Gideon, and he reduced them down to a smaller number and a smaller number, who then broke them up into three groups to then attack and defeat their enemies. Not only is there the promise of the Spirit, there is a reminder that as God has saved his people in the past by his power, that so it is with not only the power of the Spirit upon Saul, but the wisdom of God by which he used far smaller groups of people, like the 300 men under Gideon, defeat a stronger, more ensconced, more empowered, embattled enemy like the Ammonites. Saul is not a great warrior. Saul is not a great tactician. Saul is a tall farmer who God has called and empowered to be the king that will save and protect his people. When we come to the end of the passage, as there is a stirring up of the crowd to say, hey, remember those people when, when Saul was named to be the king who were rejecting him? we got to deal with them. As Saul responds to that, and we'll come back to the response, he says, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. That as Saul looks at himself and looks at the great battle that he has just won, and if you want to start out well, what better way to start a new reign than with a great victory over a powerful enemy? Saul could be riding high. You think of American presidents. What do they do? They have a hundred-day plan. They know that the first hundred days in their presidency is the most important. they got to come out. they got to establish their legislative agenda because how they start sets the tone. And the first thing that Saul does is not say, see what I did, see what I can do for you, See how we're going to win. Follow, trust Saul, and everything will be good. There's going to be a chicken in every uh, pot for you. Saul acknowledges that the Lord worked salvation. God has given them a king that will fight on behalf of the people. He has given them a king that acknowledges that the victory that he has, the fighting that he does, is dependent on God. And a king who does this, seeking to unite his people. This threat threatens not only the people of Jabesh-Gilead, but it threatens all of the people. And there's one sense in which the people get it, right? He says, I will gouge out all your eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. And then as it's reported in verse 4, then the messengers went to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. This was bad news. This is sad news. But there's a difference between when we hear sad news about what's happening in the life of another person, even a person that we often might say is part of our community, is part of our town, our neighborhood, and then the call to do something about it. 
We, we are an area besieged with the opioid addiction crisis. I think almost all of us, I know all of us, weep over that. But it's one thing to be sad for what's happening in New Hampshire, and it's another thing to have addicts in our parking lots, or to deal with the foster care system, or to hire people at our factories or at our companies who have come out of rehab. It's one thing to say, oh, that's a bad thing. It's another thing when we have to put our skin in the game. And so the question is, is Jabesh Gilead going to fall on its own? Is, is Saul going to fight for the people by himself? But Saul realizes this is a threat not only to them, not only to his new kingship, but it's a threat to the people. To let one tribe fall, pray to Nahash, threatens all of Israel. It threatens them with disunity. Because if you ask the question, if that was allowed to happen to that tribe, to that group, what about when Ammon comes for me? The Ammonites come for me, led by Nahash. Well, well, they might have allowed that to happen to Jabesh Gilead. Well, what about this clan? clan? Am, am I good enough? Am I important enough? Am I significant enough? Am I economically important enough to the life of Israel for that to happen to me? And obviously it threatens them that with each clan and tribe and territory under the control of the Ammonites, it's more power, it's more resources for Nash. And so he responds. The Spirit of the Lord descends upon him, and he takes a yoke of oxen, and he cuts them in pieces and sends them throughout all the territory of Israel behind the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul as Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. There's two ways to reading that. One way is to say, if you don't respond, then we're going to come and make sure that this happens to you. The other is the reality that if you don't respond, this is what will inevitably happen to you when the Ammonites and the Philistines overrun us. They will destroy your wealth. They will destroy your oxen. And just as much as he's using this illustration to show them the threat, it evokes for them what happened with Jabesh Gilead back in the book of judges, because a great wrong was done to this man's wife. And in, in a grisly scene in Scripture that makes us uncomfortable, as this woman has been defiled and killed, he cuts her body into pieces and sends them to the rest of Israel. Is an illustration of their disunity, of their disconnection. When everyone does what is right in their own ways, then the result is necessarily disunity. And what will it matter if Saul might be able to defeat them on his own, if the rest of Israel continues to do what is good in their own eyes? What will it mean for them to say, we want a king to rule over us if they won't submit to the king? But a king who sees his people helps his people see that the rest of them belong to each other. This was one of the primary things that was to be different about having a king for Israel. It used to be that they had judges. It used to be that each tribe kind of did their own thing and a judge would rise up and care for a certain region. But now there was a king to rule over all of them together. It's not only a challenge and a trial for Saul, it's a trial for the people. Do you really want to be unified? Do you really want to have the blessing of mutual protection, of, of strong economic ties? 
because it will cost you. It will mean fighting each other's battles. It will mean leaving your crops and your harvest behind to come and fight the battles of others. The Spirit of God has come upon the king because God wants to provide a king that will unite the people. To be one people in submission to the king. And so God, by his strength, sends Saul. Sends them with all the people united around him. They go, they divide into three. There's a little bit of strategy used because the, those in Jabesh-Gilead say, fine, we're going to submit to you tomorrow. It sets the Ammonites perhaps a bit more on ease, saying, okay, tomorrow we're going to walk in, we're going to walk over these guys, it's, they're going to be a pushover. And then they come right before dawn, before the heat of the day begins, and there is a strong military victory. So strong is the victory that it says, as those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Not only was there a great victory that they defeat the Ammonites, but they were so defeated that they were scattered to the winds so that no one or two or three men could battle together, come together to protect each other, but they just had to run for the hills. This is a chance for Saul. It is a chance for Saul to consolidate his military victory into a full and outright political one. To get rid of the naysayers who may one day become his opponents or even outright enemies. As the people are celebrating, the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? They go to Samuel because he's the seer, he knows the people, and they say, Reveal to us. You know, be our spy, be our intelligence agency to reveal the people that were casting doubt about Saul. Bring the men that we might put them to death. We took care of the enemies on the outside. Let's take care of the enemies on the inside. Instead of trying to consolidate his political power, Saul argues that they be spared. That they're not going to go search them out. They're not going to bring them so that they can put them to death. He says, no, a man shall be put to death. No man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul shows grace in the victory partly because he realizes that the victory that they've won has been by God's grace. Saul didn't have the experience. Saul didn't have the knowledge. Saul didn't have a unified people prepared to fight for each other prior to God intervening through him. Instead of choosing to celebrate himself, he goes with the people to worship God and share in fellowship. And then Samuel confirms the kingship at this time. God has demonstrated, you wanted a king, I'm going to give you a king. And now you have seen the type of king that I have provided you. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9 is a prayer. Proverbs mostly is wisdom, wisdom statements. Do this, don't do this, that would be good for you. But in Proverbs 30, it gives us a sort of prayer, a request. And here's what it says. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And then give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me 
lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The wisdom of that prayer is the wisdom of acknowledging that we are often tempted to sin in our times of struggle, in our times of defeat, just as much as when we are victorious and wealthy and full. We know this because when our kids start competing, whether you know, in, in showing animals with 4-H or in sports or other competitions, we want to teach them sportsmanship to, to not only compete well on the field, but to handle loss and victory with character. And if Saul has this great victory, the type of king that God wants them to have is a king who is gracious in his victory. Who uses his victory not to build himself up, but to build his people up. Not to lord it over them, but to show kindness and grace to them. God's people wanted a king. It was the wrong kind of king. It was a king like the rest of the nations. But God relented and said, fine, I'll give you what you wanted. And he gives them a king that will fight on behalf of the needy and the weak. He gives them a king dependent on his power. He gives them a king that unites them under his rule. And he gives them a king victorious and yet gracious. If this is the king that God gives when they want a king according to their standards, how much better is the king that God would have for us? Saul might go and fight the Ammonites and the bad guy named Snake. Jesus defeats sin and death and evil itself. Our greatest threats, our threats that will not come back in a new form with a new bad guy, with a new mafia, with a new mob boss. He defeats it at the core by dying on a cross for us. We have a king that not only fights on behalf of his people when the spirit rushes upon him, but we have one who always knows the will of God his father and does it all the time. A king upon whom the spirit descended and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Saul is able to temporarily unite Israel so that they can go fight a battle. Jesus spent three years with disciples, some of whom were zealots that wanted to throw off Roman rule with violent uprising and others who were tax collectors working with the Romans, who established a church in his name made up of Jews and Gentiles, slave and free men and women, so that one day every knee will bow where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will acknowledge him as king. We have a king who shows his character both in apparent defeat and in victory, who while he was on the cross, suffering for our sins, laboring to breathe, cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who, When one thief goes from reviling him to asking to be remembered in the kingdom, says, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is gracious and loving and kind in apparent defeat, And then when he rises from the dead, what does he do with Peter? Peter, who on the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
the night that Jesus was alone, the night that Jesus was facing his death, three times denied him. Jesus has shown himself victorious over sin and death. Jesus is everything he promised to be. What does he do with his victory? He goes to Peter and restores him. Saying, Peter, do you love me? Be my sheep. Do you love me? Be my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times, just as many times as Peter denies him, Jesus restores him because the reason he establishes the victory is not so he can just say, look at my power, but instead of attacking his enemies, he restores those who fail him. If Saul is what God will give us when we want the wrong thing, how much better is it when God gives us what he intends for us in Jesus? Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the victory that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the king who is far better than Saul, far better than any president, any emperor who has gone before. We thank you that Christ is our king and that you have given him to us and that we can share in his victory. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.